This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Being First Minister of Scotland is, in my admittedly biased opinion, the very best job in the world. It is a privilege beyond measure, one that has sustained and inspired me in good times and through the toughest hours of my toughest days. However, since my very first moments in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. That it is right for me, for my party and for the country. And so today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party. So James, today we are going to discuss the lovely situation in Scottish politics. It's a while since we've talked, and so we haven't actually had the chance to discuss Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, what this means for Scottish politics, and who is going to be leading our fine country in short order. So, listeners, what we're going to do is we are going to talk about the three candidates to be your next First Minister. So, let's get started. First of all, I'm just going to start us off. I, we don't usually do this, but I am going to quote from the Contra.Scot website because David Jameson wrote what I thought was a very fun article on this. And I'm just going to read the introduction to it because I think this is a, a good little way to start off. And he says, In Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, we witness the unwinding of the charismatic leadership of Don Vito Corleone through his sons. Each of his three boys, who he confesses to raising indulgently, embody only a portion of his strengths, offset by weakness. Sonny, the heir apparent, is forceful and strong, but without his father's sense of strategy. Fredo is warm and sociable, but weak and needy of affection. Michael is shrewd and decisive, but cold, fatefully incapable of forgiveness. The literary theme of the epigon, the offspring who cannot live up to the example of the forebear, is ancient. It was perhaps smuggled into Paul's films via psychoanalysis, with its appreciation of how crisis-afflicted personalities can split into their component parts. Social formations and organisations too can unwind in this way. Aspects of a whole which work together in a given historical moment can be torn apart in the next. The Godfather charts the collapse of a Sicilian patriarchy in the inclement weather of 20th century North America. Vito Corleone manages the balance of respect and fear love and authority, which is the patriarchal ideal, but it breaks like light through a prism in a society that can no longer accommodate this old social form. I won't abuse this analogy by individually comparing Vito's sons and the three SNP candidates. Hamza Yusuf is Frido, by the way. Suffice it to say the package of attributes that carried the SNP hegemon this far has suddenly shattered. James, what do you make of the leadership debate so far? You may have heard Kat uh, say in Contracast, our sister show on this channel, that I was entirely elated by Sturgeon's resignation. And I genuinely did feel not quite an optimism, but at least the prospect for a few hours 
that things might start shifting in a positive direction around the question of independence. But that shows my own limitations because I hadn't thought as far ahead as this particular juncture of who it was that was likely to be taken over in the Scottish National Party. And it's been sort of a revelation in a negative sense. The debate so far has created a lot of headlines. We'll go through each individual candidate one by one. But viewers in Scotland have been treated to some hustings debates. We've got a little clip here. Should we listen in? Well, Hamza, you've had a number of jobs in government. When you were transport minister, the trains were never on time. When you were justice minister, the police were strained to breaking point. And now as health minister, we've got record high waiting times. What makes you think you can do a better job as first minister? You say you're the only candidate that can persuade people who voted no. In the first week of your campaign, you had people who voted leave, uh, voted yes, leave your campaign. MSP after MSP. You've had many people, particularly from our LGBTQ community, say they won't vote for independence if you're the leader. Forget persuading no voters. You can't even keep yes voters and on side. Is- you would reject the Greens, who are, of course, the second largest pro-independence majority party. How on earth can you call yourself a unifier? Well, I am a unifier because I have already united the wider movement behind me. I think we need to heal the rifts around party. Um, if you look at what's been happening with uh, um, the arrangement with the Greens, we've actually got ourselves into um, some slightly um, murky territory at times. What have I made of the debate? Well, the bits that I have seen have been entirely low-grade. It's like almost like there's no fucking massive global crisis, far less a crisis of the British state uh, that has been ongoing for nearly a decade now. It's not just though what the debates are about, it's also the standard of debate. You couldn't even say that some of it ranks at the level of, you know, a council chamber or something like that. I really was looking forward to the debates because I thought, oh, this will be fun because they'll all be tearing strips off each other. It'll be high drama, et cetera, et cetera. But I watched the first 20 minutes of the first debate and I had to turn it off because I actually felt sorry for them. I actually looked at it and I was thinking, oh, God, I wonder if I'm that terrible when I'm up to date on stage. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They were so bad. They were so fucking bad, every single one of them. They, you know, it was one after another, and each was worse than the previous one that had spoken. And I actually felt so sorry for them that I couldn't go and watch it. Uh, that's how bad it was. I'm kind of shocked that Angus Robertson wasn't standing. I mean, as soon as I heard that he wasn't standing. I was rushing to put a bet on Hamza, quite frankly, because I just couldn't see who would be underneath them. But I always had an assumption that it would be someone like Angus Robertson. And I, you know, it just always seemed too far-fetched when people said to me it might be Hamza. His record, as intimated in that clip, is basically a succession of failures It's difficult to see what he actually brings beyond the fact that he isn't the other two candidates and he has a consistent record of being on the side of, frankly, whoever is in charge of the SNP. He was a rabid Salmonite when Salmon was in charge, a rabid Sturgeonite when Sturgeon was in charge, and he's never shown any inclination to think remotely for himself. But I think that's also his central limitation. Other than sheer blandness, He doesn't have a great deal to offer at this particular stage. And I think part of the problem Hums has got 
is that he can maybe just about competently communicate. He's not a good manager, though, and he doesn't have any ideas. So unless someone is really taking a hold of him and using him effectively as a sock puppet, then I think the SNP is kind of in trouble if Hamza were to win. I just think it's symptomatic of what Sturgeonism did to the party. If you're going to have a very centralised leadership model, then the inevitable consequence is that you are going to starve your cabinet of anyone with talent so that there are no alternative voices and no potential challengers in the party. That's what Sturgeonism has done. And Hamza and arguably the other two candidates as well are symptomatic of that as a problem. He certainly is not someone who you feel like has a vision, but he is the favourite. It does look like he will most likely win because of his positioning as a continuity candidate, because he has served in the administration of both Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon and has told the line the entire time. Yeah, but he's got no one to toe the line to. And there's a few other problems as well. I mean, yes, he's the continuity candidate in a way. But oddly enough, it's only Ash Regan that's the actual continuity candidate on the most serious question. I mean, Sturgeon a few weeks ago, remember, her whole strategy around the SNP's, you know, substantive goal of independence was a de facto referendum. Ash Regan is the only candidate that's still cleaving to that as some sort of strategy. Therefore, in a way, in a sort of crazy way, Ash Regan is the continuity candidate if you ever took Sturgeon seriously at her word, which, of course, no sensible person ever did. But if you did, then Ash Regan is, in that sense, the continuity candidate. And it's also true that, you know, if there was a level of confidence in the upper echelons of the SNP, Hamza wouldn't even need to be talking about policy. But actually, he did throw away some freebies onto the front page of the Daily Record recently. And to me, that was kind of also symptomatic of a level of panic setting in. Because really, given the level of endorsements that Hamza's had, which is crazy, right? Given that level of endorsement, it should be an absolute shoe in and there shouldn't even be questions about the fact that he would win. But it's symptomatic of the low grade of the candidate and also of the deeper uncertainties inside the party that things are working, that this is in any way a type of contest. Really, given the fact that Kate Forbes has seemingly made all these errors, although we might discuss whether they are deliberate or whether they are, you know, slips of the tongue or, you know, whether they are political mistakes or whether it's part of a strategy. I mean, that's something to debate. But given all that... It's insane that Hamza might not win this. And yet it's possible, right? I mean, I would say it's still likely that he will win and they will somehow pull it out of the bag from somewhere. But I also just wouldn't be that surprised if Kate Forbes were to, you know, were to nick it. I don't know. What would you what do you think? I think that Hamza's gonna win it. I mean, I think that it's it's obviously hard to say because what we're talking about is an electorate that is very hard to pull. SNP members and the SNP membership, the composition of it's been changing a lot over the last few years. Lots of people have left, certainly Ash Reagan's base. The people who we would have expected to support Ash Reagan, many of them have left to join Alaba. We do have at least one poll that has surveyed the SNP membership, and that was a Savannah poll for the Daily Telegraph. And it shows that Hamza Youssef has the lead with 31% of members saying that they would back 
Hamza Youssef compared to 25% for Kate Forbes and Ash Reagan in third on 11%. But it's worth saying that nearly a third, 32%, still haven't made up their mind. So it's very possible that things could change up. There are a couple of academics who have been granted access to the SNP membership list and have done a study of SNP member attitudes. That's Rob Johns and Professor James Mitchell. There's one finding in their research that I thought was really quite interesting. They asked respondents who are all SNP members to rank order their favorite options in relation to independence. So they could either choose independence in the European Union, independence outside of the European Union, or devolution max. Now, a non-trivial minority, 14%, actually put devolution max first. Yeah. So there's 14% of SNP members who would actually prefer devolution to any form of independence. And another 34% ranked at second. That is to say that they would actually prefer further devolution than they would an independent Scotland if it wasn't able to be part of the European Union. Now, 34 plus 14, you're nearly at 50%. You're nearly at half of the SNP membership who would prefer to have further devolution rather than independence if it meant that an independent Scotland didn't rejoin the EU. I feel like the new young contingent of party members are, for the most part, socially liberal. They're based to a large extent in the central belt, and I think that they are going to come in behind Hamza, ultimately. And I think that that will give him the victory, although I think that it is going to be a split vote. This is not going to be something in which someone is coronated with a huge majority. That, that, that's, my, that's my sense. That's, that's my prediction. If I was going to put money on it, I would put money on Hamza, certainly. I don't know whether this assumption is true, right? But there is an assumption that the bulk of Ash Reagan's second votes go to Forbes. Now, you can see how, even if it was, say, 80% of Ash Reagan votes go to Forbes on the basis of that poll, what that implies is that Kate Forbes would win. Hamza would win the sort of plurality of votes, but Kate Forbes would win overall, given the second preferences from Reagan. And those numbers do give cause to panic, particularly as there are other polls out there which show, you know, certainly show that Forbes is more popular with the general public. That's interesting. And that might start weighing in people's minds as well. I think ultimately if it comes down to it and the party's thinking, do we vote for the candidate that might be more popular with the public or do we vote for keeping the party, you know, together and not having the potential of a meltdown? Ultimately, I think they will vote for Hamza on that basis. But it's still interesting to think about why the people around Hamza are going to all these desperation stakes in order to make sure that they win. How is that desperation manifested? Well, I mean, there's a few things that I've already mentioned. I mean, I think the sudden policy announcements coming out, which clearly aren't coming from Hamza himself, but just generally from the party apparatus, some of the virulence of the rhetoric against the other candidates from certain sections, including from senior people in the party. Endorsements coming from people said that they wouldn't endorse anyone, I think is very symptomatic of the fact that there's panic. Do you know what I mean? Uh, And certainly there's been a few high-profile SNPs, MPs and MSPs that weren't going to endorse anyone that are now openly swinging out for Hamza. Again, like you wouldn't be seeing that 
unless there was panic. There's a lot of people in the SNP who uh, are employed by the SNP and they have family members and close friends and networks of people and so on. And they'll all be working basically on Humza's side or large numbers of them will be because they'll be worried for their jobs otherwise. So all these things together tend to suggest that he would be still the most likely person to win. But there's certainly nothing in that poll that suggests that Kate Forbes can't win. I, I'm going to confess, make a confession here, right? I do occasionally look at Wings Over Scotland. And now, that is a confession, but having said that, if you look at the readership numbers that that guy is always banging on about, it's clear that many people are reading it. So, you know, it's kind of like pornography, you know, nobody admits to it, but like uh, someone out there is doing that porn, right? And also... You know, I am occasionally reading Wings Over Scotland, right? I will admit it. And what he did report the other week was the demographics of age inside the SNP, which is actually quite interesting to look at. It's a far older party than you think. It's actually older than average in terms of Scottish parties. Right? So they've actually got a much older membership base. Like, And although the young sort of like, you know, Yas Queen, Nicola kind of element is the sort of most visible and vocal in social media, it does seem like there's a sort of quiet older generation out there and we don't really know what they think. And they could go either way. Certainly they're not going to be as motivated by some of the sort of like um, culture war politics stuff in the same way that some of the SNP's younger wing will be. So again, you can't quite predict that layer of people. They could still go though for the continuity candidate. And I think part of the reason they might is because really there is no principle of loser's consent in this internal party democracy. And there might be a layer of people who are sort of party loyalists, only care about independence, yada, 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 who are like, I just don't want to risk civil war by voting for the wrong person. It's interesting you bring up the civil war point, though, because while Hamza has positioned himself as a continuity candidate, I think in organizational matters, he's going to be the least continuous, if you like. That is to say that Sturgeon governed with an iron fist in a highly centralized party and governmental structure. And there's no way that Hamza Yousaf is going to be able to get away with that. I can imagine a situation, if he's first minister, in which other cabinet members are constantly warring, feel like they have power to oppose the strategy outlined by the First Minister, I can see a lot more debate in the cabinet, if you like. I can see a lot more internal civil wars breaking yeah. out over the course of the next few years. I can see that as well. I mean, you can think how Humza could be a good candidate in a different type of party system, right? See if you had like loads of, you know, trusted grandees in and around the party, right? And you had serious intellectuals in different ranks of the party, maybe surrounding the party and so on, that could guide it and shape him and so on from behind the scenes. Then you can think how, you know, he's young, he's handsome, he's personable, he's an okay communicator, you know, as long as he doesn't have to do any thinking or any managing, right? As long as he doesn't have any of those tasks, he'd be absolutely fine. The problem is he's going to be expected to hold the whole thing together in the circumstances where it has been essentially uh, one or two people doing the whole thing from the top down. And they just can't see how they can now have consensus on virtually anything. It does seem like 
those elements of the party that are supporting Hamza will not tolerate the fact that someone else could win the election, right? Over these various high-profile culture issues, but potentially also over what it would mean in terms of investigations into internal behaviour in the party and some of these other dynamics as well, right? Who knows? Equally, it's not entirely clear what Humza does with the likes of Kate Forbes, who have been openly criticising his record, the government's record, and so on, supported by MPs and MSPs and so on, albeit a much smaller number of them. What do they do with these people now? (laughs) How do they hold any of this together when it has been so vicious and so brutal? And what you're going to have is a series of ticking time bombs and people just kind of like waiting to pounce when things go wrong, which it looks like they inevitably will for whoever wins the election. In some ways, winning it could be the poison chalice and it would be better to bide your time for a few years and just watch everything go wrong and then take over the party then. The main thing that Hamza has come under fire for is his absence from the vote on passing legislation on gay marriage in Scotland. He has consistently said that he is in favour of gay marriage, but when it came to the vote, he put in that he had important ministerial business to attend so that he couldn't attend the vote. However, then Alex Salmond intervened. Alex Salmond said that 10 days prior to the vote, he was informed that Hamza was going to miss the vote because of pressures from the Muslim community that he was under. I mean, my memory is that I was contacted ten, ten days or so before the before the vote, when the vote was known, and uh, and told that Hamza was arranging a ministerial appointment. Uh, I've discussed it with people who were with me at the time, so I know it's well. Their memory is the same as mine. What was the reason that was given to to have to skip the vote? Well, I, mean, I didn't discussed the, the thing at great length. It was the assumption was there was pressure. Uh, that, that, there was a lot of religions. Well, well, a lot, lot of religions were, were canvassing and opting. It's no secret that there was, uh, there was that, but it was a free vote and people could do it. Like, I had ministers uh, who were against uh, equal marriage and who voted against equal marriage and they continued as ministers. Sorry, you, you, but you're saying that there was pressure. Mr. Yousaf was on, under pressure, and that was communicated. Uh, lots, to you. Lo- lots of people directly or through a third party that was communicated. Yes, to you. but lots under of people, pressure from but, the Muslim community. But, but, but no doubt, other communities as well. Just to be clear, your recollection was that it was a conscience vote, um, but that vote was missed because of religious pressure. That it was a vote that Mr. Well, Yousaf perhaps wanted to avoid. Well, as that's was, your recollection. Well, as was, that's my recollection. Okay. What do you make of this, James? Well, on the one hand, like, I mean, what does it matter, right? It's clear that Humza, relative to Kate Forbes, is the more likely to be pro-gay marriage nowadays. So you can say, isn't this a bit of a red herring, right? What it does bear on, of course, though, is, you know, the question of reliability and honesty and hypocrisy. Maybe there's an argument that uh, someone like Kate Forbes at least believes all the things that she's talking about, albeit that they are views that I entirely disagree with. Hamza just seems to be a sort of 
his point of view is for rent some of the time. You know what I mean? Like, uh, mm-hmm. like a lot of these figures on the center left of politics, it's not entirely clear that he believes in anything. There's a sort of element of sheer nihilism about a lot of these career politicians, and therefore you can consider them to be unreliable allies insofar as they will largely blow by the wind. By contrast with Kate Forbes, maybe it's the case that, you know, what you see is what you get, and it's better the enemy that you know in some respect or other. I guess the question, though, Pete, and I don't know what your view on this is, does it actually matter, or is it just the fact that he is more pro-gay marriage than Kate Forbes, therefore he is morally better? Or is it like, well, he's dishonest, and you can't trust a word that he says, and he'll just do whatever's convenient? I personally don't think it matters. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, I know that we can't just take politicians at their word. But more than any other candidate, he has come out and defended gay marriage more than any of the other candidates. And I do think that there is a little bit of Islamophobia, uh, sort of nascent Islamophobia going on in the recording of this because he's asked a question, do you support gay marriage? And he says, yes. But then everyone says, ah, no, we don't believe him. And it's not just the case that people are saying they don't believe him about his answer as to why he didn't attend the vote. There seems to be a general inkling that says he's a Muslim and therefore he must be against gay marriage because Muslims can't be progressive. So I do think there's a big slice of Islamophobia in the overall analysis of both the media and the public reaction to it. I I agree with you, yeah. I, I think there probably is a little bit of that. In fact, more than a little... You don't think he'd be getting this type of roasting if he wasn't a Muslim, right? I, I actually do accept that you might be right on that. In any case, I don't think it's the reason that the left should be suspicious of Hamza. You know, maybe you can say, well, he's a bit unreliable. He's a, it does he always tell the truth, etc. But I mean, like, well, he's a fucking politician, isn't he? I mean, of course he doesn't. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's quite far from the point. I mean, I think one of the interesting things for us to ask Pete, right, is, you know how should the left respond to all of this? Because we're just talking about who's likely to win. And in a lot of ways, I think that's the more interesting question, right? Because really, I don't think the left should be endorsing anyone in some ways. Having said that, it's probably worth considering because there are a lot of people on the left getting embroiled in all these different candidates, whether for or against. But certainly Ash Reagan has her supporters on the left, including the sort of you know, alibi adjacent left. There's a lot of people, you know, sort of hysterically backing Hamza Yousaf and saying it'll be fascism and Gilead if we don't have Hamza Yousaf. There's probably even a few leftists out there that are backing Kate Forbes just out of sheer randomness, you know. Um, So the left is kind of getting pulled into the debate in various different ways. Do you think we should be backing someone here? Absolutely not. I don't think you can back any of these candidates. I really don't. Not uh, as the left, because I don't think any of them are left wing, if I'm honest. I mean, we can debate their socially liberal versus socially conservative bona fides, but that, to me, is really the only thing that's on offer. I mean, I think that Kate Forbes, in my opinion, should be opposed the most, because I think that Kate Forbes, frankly, outside of her support for independence, could very easily be the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party in a sort of Ruth Davidson mould. The fact that her main critique of the previous administration is that Sturgeon wasn't friendly enough with business, I think speaks volumes for the 
direction that she would likely take the SNP government. Yeah, I I do accept what you're saying. I mean, um, I, leaving aside all the cultural stuff and, you know, some of which I do actually find relatively disturbing. So moving on to Kate Forbes. Kate Forbes's campaign was defined by a series of interviews that she gave right after announcing her leadership ambitions in which she said she was against gay marriage, in which she said that she was against the GRR, the Gender Recognition Reform, and got into hot water because many people felt that her socially conservative views, based on her religious views, meant that she was out of kilter with the majority of Scottish opinion. And the commentariat suggested that this was the end of her campaign right from the very start. Others said that this was a clever move on her behalf because she was being open, honest, and people are fed up with politicians not saying what they actually believe. This was a case of her really just telling everyone exactly what she believed and where she stood and saying that even though she believed these things, that it wouldn't impact her ability to govern because she would stick to SNP policy. Marriage being between a man and a woman, that is what I practice. But I will not roll back on any rights that already exist in Scotland. If you were about at the time where you were able to legislate on this, that's been and gone now, but you would have voted against that then because of your beliefs. I would have. Is it correct for people to have children before marriage? It's entirely up to them. It's if they What's are, your view? Is it, is it correct for, children, uh, for, for people across Scotland to have children outside of marriage? Um, it's, it's, not, it's something that I would um, seek to avoid uh, for me personally but it doesn't fuss me, it doesn't put me up and down. Is it right or is it wrong well, in your in view? In terms of my faith, my faith would say that children, well, it says sex is for, for marriage, and that's the approach that I would practice. Let's uh, look now at the case of gender reforms. I have previously said before maternity leave that I had significant concerns with self-identification, and I would continue to have had those concerns. So is that you saying you wouldn't like to see 16, 17, 17 year olds included in, in this I think bill? it's all about safeguards. But just, just to be clear, uh, and you talk about straight talking at the start, yeah. uh, do you, are you in favour of 16 and 17 year olds being part of this legislation? I would have been far more supportive of it being 18 year olds. So you don't support 16 and 17 year olds, is that what you're saying? I am saying that. What do you make of this Ferrari? It might have damaged her campaign and certainly will have damaged her prospects among SNP MPs and MSPs and the party apparatus. The gay marriage position is an extreme minority type of position. And I guess like the best that can really be said for it is that her position is so isolated that there is no chance whatsoever that it could have much of an impact or could even gain much sucker in mainstream religious circles in some ways, far less in broader society, far, far less in the Scottish Parliament. So in some ways it's like, you know, it can sort of be cancelled out in people's heads just because it's so wacky. The gender recognition one is a bit more complicated because obviously it's already divided the SNP. There's evidence that a significant part of the membership is divided on the question. And overall, if you believe the polls, there's quite a lot of evidence to say that Forbes's position is popular and even that a lot of SNP voters and possibly, possibly even members would support the UK government quashing the legislation. 
because they think that it's an important moral issue, even given the issues that it raises around questions of devolution. So that's quite a complex one uh, that's quite difficult to unpack. Regardless of your own views on the topic, it's difficult really to say whether this is harming Cape Forbes. And there's two different questions here. There's like, how does the left respond to social conservatives like Kate Forbes? What's the real risk that's posed by Kate Forbes on the one hand? And then there's a the question of like, will it play well with the SNP membership or the wider country? It seems it is not massively harming her given that she's the most popular candidate in the wider country relative to the other two. Having said that, I think that's also because the other two are perceived as very, very incompetent. And just the air of professionalism that she has on some level. Professionalism, despite her wacky views, seems to be playing well with a layer of people, some SNP people, some more conservative people. Remembering that often competence is really just a synonym for neoliberal, and she is very neoliberal. <laughs> I mean, she's like one of these kind of people who's kind of like, you know, She's kind of a throwback to an era where people were like both socially conservative and economically conservative, you know, like economically neoliberal, right? I mean, it's like the good old days of Thatcherism when you got people like Anne Widdicombe or something like that, you know? Yeah, it always brings a nostalgic tear to my eye for, to have an enemy like that as opposed to one of these sort of, you know, these people I call neoliberal sharks, you know what I mean? These kind of sturgeony people who are socially liberal, but going to brutally stab you in the back with some cuts, you know? It's refreshing to have a mad Calvinist kicking about, and that's how bad politics has got. <laughs> I, I like your characterization of, you're effectively saying that Kate Forbes is a, a young Anne Whittacombe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of people fancy Kate Forbes. That's kind of a difference, right? But... I'm not going to comment on that. Maybe people fancied Anne Whittacombe back in the day. You never know. There might have been a, a, a witty fan club kicking about. Um, I won't comment if I'm on a member of that one either. But like, Kate, yeah, Kate Forbes is you know, a real kind of throwback politician. Difficult really for us to compute because she's not just of our generation. She's fucking younger than us, man, right? But she's got these crazy, like, you know, socially conservative views and stuff like that. She just doesn't fit with a lot of the cultural politics of the day. You know, she's on the one hand young and very personable, and she does come across as quite personable, if a little, you know, stilted, but also, you know, has reactionary views on a number of things. Where I get a bit annoyed about the anti-Forbes stuff, if I'm being honest, is just that everyone knew what she believed, and it was never hidden, and she was ruthlessly promoted inside the SNP, under Sturgeon, under all these so-called left-wing types within the party that were supposedly leading it and so on, all these wokesters, they all knew what she was about. There was, it was never hidden. Every single person that was anywhere near Scottish politics knew what Kate Forbes was about. So don't give me your sanctimony about this. It's a load of nonsense. It's worth remembering that when Sturgeon took over the party, she was ruthlessly about crushing the left. And this is why she backed Ian Blackford, who's also a wee free uh, as the leader in Westminster. And I just don't buy this shit that they don't know about what Kate Forbes is about. James, just on her religion, she's a member of the Wee Freeze. I don't yeah. know much about this, but given 
the amount of contra coverage that is given uh, in other podcasts to Scottish religion and the various churches. Can you tell me anything about the wee freeze? Yeah, they're a schism of a schism, really, aren't they? Of Scottish Presbyterianism, right? Well, yeah, but like uh, Scottish Presbyterians split during the Great Disruption into two, right? And you got the Free Church, and they're a split from the Free Church, right? Who maybe probably thought that they weren't radical enough, weren't chaining up enough swings, and were generally allowing too much of a good time to go ahead in society and wanted to clamp down a little bit more to traditional Calvinism or whatever. I think that's a very crude summary of uh, where these people come from. They do seem to have a fair bit of influence in certain parts of the country, particularly in the Highlands and Islands. You'll see the odd free church thing kind of kicking about in even Glasgow and so on as well. They are usually seen as a kind of figure of comedy. They're not somebody you'd take as particularly... I, I mean, the idea that someone from the free church would be running the country <laughs> it sounds like a bad joke, um, but uh, but here we are. Um, it could happen, you know. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott. We haven't had a chance to discuss my favourite candidate, Ash Reagan. And listeners, that's not because I'm endorsing Ash Reagan, and it's not because I think that she would make a good first minister, but she would make a funny first minister. There's an idea that I wanted to, to put to you. It's not my idea, but the group that came up with it have said that we should be using it in the campaign. And it's the idea of a readiness thermometer. I don't know if anyone's um, seen that idea yet. So the idea is you can have an actual installation, which is a readiness thermometer. We could put it up in, in Glasgow or in Edinburgh, and it can be outside, and it has a dial on it that moves. So when we've you know set, made all the plans for the the currency, for instance, or we've set up how we're going to do something to do with the defense or whatever it is, that dial will move and it will inch forward. And the media can look at it. Everyone can look at it. And it builds that confidence with the public so that when we get up to the 100%, everybody in Scotland knows we've solved all these problems. We've set up the current, you know, everything's ready to go. And they'll have that confidence. So, James, the Scottish Doomsday Clock, what do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it kind of could be cool. Like, you know, uh, it bursts out the top and some sort of proverbial orgasm when we get independence or something like that. Is that the idea? <laughs> I believe so. That sounds cool. Why are we not doing that? To extend my metaphor, right, it's going to be like tantric sex, you know what I mean? Like, uh, at the current rate that we're going. Uh, it's going to be like Sting style, taking 50 years but then we'll get there eventually, like, and then the, the, the thermometer will just fucking explode with independence. Yeah, I think it sounds like a pretty fairly decent idea. It's the most sensible one that she's come up with so far, and I, I find it pretty cool. I'm in favour. I, I don't know. I mean, do you think Ash Reagan is the candidate for the left? No, I don't. I don't think she's a candidate for the left. 
but I do think she's added some amusement into the whole affair. Ash Reagan, uh, I mean, God bless her, right? I mean, clearly, she probably didn't expect to be standing, right? And the SNP apparatus seems to have done this thing, right? Where normally the election is supposed to take four months and it's sort of constitutionally inscribed that's how long it takes. But they decided they were going to do the whole thing rush through in four weeks for whatever reason, right? That's what they decided that they were going to do. Now, poor Ash Regan had probably not considered herself to be, you know, manufacturing a campaign for leadership of the SNP. The one thing she was really associated with prior to a couple of weeks ago was just the position that she took on the GRR. Now, we're not going to comment on that, except to say that some people agree with that and some people disagree with that, and that split is there on the left as it is in other places in society. But the fact that she might have a programme beyond that didn't really seem to be on anyone's uh, radar. So she's essentially had to come up with a whole bunch of ideas to separate herself from the other candidates in the process of maybe a week. And in the process of the time after that, the poor women's had to be schlepped around the country to various mad hustings, right? that are full of SNP fucking staffers that are wearing a false moustache to try and pretend they're a different person from the time that it was on the previous night, right? I mean, and it's possibly fair enough under those circumstances that she has become massively gaff-prone and weird in terms of her whole communication style. She's had no time to prepare a campaign, to do any media training, yada, yada, yada. Having said that, she has been extraordinarily weird. The interesting thing really about this campaign is, given how badly Ash Reagan has performed, she's actually someone who could exert an influence on the overall result and isn't completely, you know, any kind of polling evidence that we're seeing is suggesting that she isn't a million miles away from the other candidates. So in some ways, she is a barometer uh, I don't know if that is a pun, right? Um, or some sort of continuity of a metaphor from before, right? <laughs> she is a barometer of the shitness of the other candidates. And yeah, I mean, more than one in 10 SNP members are backing her, which is yeah. not insignificant. And doesn't that one in 10 also include those who don't know? So there could be some don't knows who end up saying, fuck it, I'm going for the thermometer. That's true. I mean, honestly, this is like her wall. I love it. This is her build a wall. And why not build a big clock thermometer thing? The other thing that has defined Ash Reagan's candidacy is her adoption of the de facto referendum position. She has continually said that the next general election will be effectively a referendum on independence. And if the SNP gain an overall majority, that will signal independence and that'll be it. We've got to move away from this point where we're asking permission from the UK. This is about Scotland, and it's about Scotland expressing its views on how it wants to be governed. So we're, we're going to get away from that. And this is my attempt to move us forward, to move that conversation forward. And but the concept of a negotiation obviously requires two parties. If they refuse of to course. turn up, and my question is, what would you do then? So we are going to be getting international recognition, obviously, for the fact that Scotland has made a democratic choice in this case. In a general election? Yes. Do you think the international community 
We'd see a general election. Right. Well, you tell me, out of the 65 countries that have become independent from the UK, how many of them have had referendums? You tell me. You tell me. The point is that the international community, it is pretty clear, Mm -hmm. would not regard Scotland's case for independence as valid unless it were agreed to by the state which Scotland was seceding from. That's a pretty established principle in international law, no? Um, the UK government will agree to it, um, and international recognition will lead to that as well. They will. Oh, so, yeah. so the, the UK government will agree. I think they will. That the general election results of a victory for the this, SNP means that Scotland. This is going to be a clear instruction from the people of Scotland on what they want to do next. So this is democracy in action. But the UK government has said they won't agree to it. The Prime Minister says he won't agree to it. Or even the Labour Party says he won't agree to it. Well, this is our strategy. I'm going to take it to conference. We're going to agree it as a plan, and then we're going to do it. We were told a lot of things um, in the No campaign as well. Do you remember that in 2014? We were told a lot of things that didn't turn out to be the case. So this is our plan. We're going to be very clear about it, and we're going to move forward with that plan if um, the SNP members agree to it at conference. So the UK government will pay then? The UK government will listen to a clear instruction from the electorate of Scotland. I believe they will, yes. So, Pete, I, I just want to make sure that we've got this correct and we're not misquoting uh, Ash Reagan or any of this, right? Because, obviously, we value truth on this podcast in a way that other people do not, most especially SNP candidates. So just to be clear, Ash Reagan was not, by her own terms, campaigning for a, <laughs> a de facto referendum. Nobody, in fact, is now doing a de facto referendum. Instead, she is proposing a voter empowerment mechanism. And what is a voter empowerment mechanism? The degree to which a voter empowerment mechanism is different from the previous de facto referendum, I think is a distinction that exists thus far entirely in the mind of Ash Reagan. Nonetheless, uh, maybe at some stage she will enlighten the public when she wins and has announced her readiness thermometer as to the difference between the two. It seems like the only thing I can see that's really different so far is that they're just going to keep holding every election, as far as I can see, on a de facto referendum basis until we win. Except that every time we do that, the UK government refuses to recognise that we should even have another referendum. Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I mean... God bless, right? I, I I want to like Ash Reagan, right? There's part of me wants to like Ash Reagan and to think that any of this could remotely work because I think Hamza, for the reasons I've outlined, is a diabolical option for anyone that is on the left and seriously committed to independence beyond some vague moral commitment about living in a Scotland that's socially just or some shit. If you actually want independence then you should be angry at the way that you have been taken advantage of over the last period, about the way the party's been run and so on. You shouldn't go anywhere near Humza. Obviously, you can't go near Kate Forbes, right? Kate Forbes is basically the Scottish Anne Widdicombe, right? And we've already outlined why the problems with having a Scottish Anne Widdicombe, right? So I want to like Ash Reagan, I, I sort of semi-admire the fact that she's willing to do something a little bit contrarian and mad, but I, none of this is going to work, right? So anyway, like, 
I I don't think that someone I don't think it's someone that the left should really be pinning their any type of hopes on. But then again, none of the candidates are. Outside of their support for Scottish independence, there is no reason that Hamza Youssef could not be in a Scottish Labour Party administration or even leader of Scottish Labour. He's exactly the sort of new Labour style politician who is pretty vacuous in his beliefs, who will approximate himself to whatever he thinks is popular at the time and will ultimately pursue more or less socially liberal policies. But he's a sort of PFI, public-private partnership kind of guy. He could easily be in New Labour. Yeah, and uh, 100%. And Kate Forbes, outside of the fact that she's probably too socially conservative for them, would probably make a very good leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. In fact, she would be the perfect successor to Ruth Davidson. And Ash Reagan, well, you know, maybe she could be a Republican populist in the, the States. Now, that's taking it a little bit far. I'm sure Ash Reagan's not really anything like that. But, you know, you get what I'm saying. I, I do get what you're saying, and it does emphasise the point that if you take away that little magic fairy dust ingredient of independence, the SNP is very, very vulnerable to challenge. And that kind of raises a strategic problem, I think, for us on the left, which is, what do we actually do? Because independence does depend on the SNP and it's completely fake to pretend otherwise, right? Yes, we can have a movement independently of them, but also if the SNP is refusing to budge, then we can't just force them to do so, right? Through the process of movement building. All under one banner demonstrations were absolutely huge, but Sturgeon just completely refused to engage with them, right? And thus they were essentially shut out of the ability to make any meaningful power manoeuvres. So the movement itself can't substitute for it. If the SNP is in a process of political and intellectual decline on a fairly massive scale, and if it's likely to tear itself apart and so on, it does raise the question of what are we thinking about independence? Are we thinking about it now as a longer-term aspiration? Even that sort of troubles me, though, Pete, I'll tell you, because... The scale at which we need change right now is fairly immediate. We're surrounded by all these crises, planetary, economic meltdown, a war that's you know degenerated into a proxy war that's going nowhere and has just become many people dying in another terrible, another terrible conflict, right? That's even worse than some of the other ones of recent years. And all these other different things are coming together. The idea that we would wait till 2050 for fucking independence. I wouldn't even care about independence on that level of timescale, man. We shouldn't even be talking about it if that's a timescale. So it does leave us in a bit of a strategic quandary because I don't want to also end up in a situation where we are just taking for granted the British state and all the problems that we know are associated with that. Yeah, absolutely. To me, though, it seems like independence is off the cards, certainly for the foreseeable future. It just doesn't seem like a viable strategy to pursue just now. Even though every single SNP candidate is saying it's immediate, Kate Forbes is saying it's much closer than everyone thinks, I think that's nonsense. I mean, the simple reality is this. To have a legally binding referendum, we need a Section 30 order. The Conservative Party have made it very clear that they're never going to grant another Section 30 order. Keir Starmer, in order to look hard in front of Middle England, 
has also said that Labour will never allow a second referendum. What that basically means is the only conditions under which a Section 30 order could be granted are if there's a UK general election in which the Labour Party wins, but not by enough to form a stable majority government, so effectively a hung parliament. Under these circumstances, the SNP could negotiate with Labour and say that they would back a Labour administration on the condition that they granted Scotland the right to hold another referendum. The chances of that happening are minuscule. Yeah. These are incredibly unlikely odds. Certainly, it looks like Labour's going to win the next general election, probably by quite a substantial margin. So yeah. we're talking about at least a general election after that before there is any possibility of it happening. I, I mean, honestly, I just think that the structural conditions are there such that independence is off the table. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the moment's been missed. And the moment had passed quite long ago. In Connor, we've been pretty clear about this for the last three years, basically. And others have been fomenting delusion or believing in some sort of delusion over that time. And it must be abundantly clear by now that there was never real seriousness about any of this. The moment for me, probably, that it could have something could have happened was when Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party, when it looked like it might be possible that Labour could gain a narrow victory and the uncertainty surrounding Brexit. And it was clear that Corbyn and Macdonald were willing to negotiate on some level with the SNP over that. And there was a big section of Labour-left people who were trying to work out the kinks of their own position in relation to some of those constitutional dynamics. That was the moment when they could have actually worked something. But you have to remember back then, Nicola Sturgeon was hysterically sticking the boot into Corbynism. And it's a big part of Nicola Sturgeon's characteristic as a politician that is often forgotten. If she receives any challenge whatsoever from the left, she went absolutely mental. And I think in a deeply factional way, was unwilling to remotely ever countenance the idea that someone might challenge the SNP from the left. Hence, she ganged up with the likes of Keir Starmer and others in the People's Vote movement, which was very clearly and obviously in retrospect just a move to unseat and undermine Jeremy Corbyn within the Labour Party, hence squandering the one potential chance that we might have had for an opening around the question of independence. And since then, I think he's been basically dead. <laughs> 